papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union, now with UpstateAmerican.com. Here's Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and professor. Barbara Lombardo, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record. That would be Saratoga Springs and Troy. And Dr. Ellen Sharktok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Grand Pooba of this studio and all it's thereabouts. How'd you do? How'd you do, sir? So, Alan, you know, there mm. is some question as to whether the big lie of the 2022 midterms is going to continue. You know, the big lie about the Trump taking the election, but just overall, what can journalists do, do you think, about the fact that politicians just don't tell the truth? Well, they can say so, and they are. I have seen political broadcasts. I've seen news broadcasts in which they call it out. They say this isn't true. So-and-so said this, but it's not right. It's not true. So I think we, or journalists, or people who are broadcasters, have not only the right to say it, but the obligation to say it, and it makes some people nervous. And that's all I have to say about that. Mm -hmm. Any better ideas, Rosemary? You know, the only place it seems to stop the MAGA types is in court. So can journalists bring suit? We have congressmen bringing suit against Trump. We have Dominion and other voting machine companies. I'd like to see, you know, why doesn't CNN turn around and sue Trump instead of the other way around? Perhaps it'll go no further than his suits, but it would be a different way to fight it. You know, it is a great idea. If I were Rupert Murdoch, by the way, I would be telling my commentators, you know, it's one thing for you to denigrate politicians. You know, you can lie all you want about politicians, but don't take on a corporation like Dominion Voting Systems and those folks, because I think this is going to cost Fox. Barbara, this experience, though, of having to call out Pauls didn't exist, or did we just not exercise it very well in the past? In the old days when we were running newsrooms and things were more kind? That we didn't call a lie a lie. Mm -hmm. We didn't call a lie a lie quite a bit, but the lies were not as egregious. You mean they were exaggerations? They were... uh... They were lies, but Mm -hmm. they weren't as damaging. Yeah, we have big tech uh, now trying to double down. Big tech meaning Meta, which is the parent of Facebook, you know, Twitter, TikTok, and so on, trying to figure out how they can deal with it. That is election misinformation. But the fact is, it's it's really hard to do because there are so many platforms that intentionally distort cable news networks, podcasts, encrypted messaging, direct mail, all of these things that are now intentionally spouting lies and disinformation newspapers, newspapers that are actually published by politicians that purport to be real local newspapers. What do you do about that kind of thing? People don't know if what they're looking at is actually a real news organization or whether it's just some political 
Well, you know, Rex, there will be people who are listening to this who say, oh, well, the New York Times, I read it every day and it makes me furious because they're such liberals and they're, they're always putting out basically information that I don't agree with. So that's where you get into real danger here. I know Rosemary Armeo has some thoughts on that. Well, I've been reading, finally, I may be the last person in America to read it, but Ron Chernow's book on mm -hmm. Hamilton. And I'm sort of heartened by the incredibly bad journalism of the early colonial period. <laughs> Admittedly, there wasn't social media, there wasn't even broadcast, I get it, it's only print. But they would tell politicians on each of the two factions, Federalist and Republican, told outrageous, completely unsubstantiated lies that make, in fact, the big lie look kind of middling. <laughs> and this was this was done without, there were no libel laws, there was nothing like that. It was just open, lying warfare. And Hamilton, of course, was frequently the winner in these because he was so prolix. He could write tons of words and drown people in his. So maybe that's it. We got to write more and do more. I, I don't know. The, the other thing is that big tech were moving towards some sort of regulation of them, and I don't think it can be by the government. We have a government that is not able to discern itself the truth. Ron Johnson comes to mind. So how can they regulate exactly. media? Exactly. What do you it's, got? Yeah, it's got to be self-regulatory. And we have to. We've tried that before. It doesn't work. Well, and now you have Elon Musk taking over Twitter. So who knows? I think we're going to be back in the colonial period, slinging all kinds of lies and. But um, but garbage. it's not just slinging lies. I've been thinking about how you know maybe they were onto something that we strayed too far over to trying to be a quote unquote objective about, and maybe we need to be more forth. We people who are in the power to provide news to be more forthcoming about what their beliefs are, what their positions are and let people know that you know, we're against the big lie and these are the stories we're going to cover in this so it's not lying but mm -hmm. it's it's coming from a point of view and owning up to it well we do have editorial pages if somebody reads an editorial page you get a pretty good idea where a newspaper or a another outputter hmm. is that's opinion that's opinion page that's not the same thing as the news coverage though that's the difference uh, well you see rex that's where you and i will always disagree i uh, read your newspaper for years and i had a pretty good idea about where the placement of a story was um mm. you're saying mm, but your lips are really pursed let the, <laughs> let the, listeners, let the listeners know that so I've always thought that the editorial interests of a newspaper are pretty apparent in each case. And isn't that true at WAMC? Certainly that, uh, not. Your liberal bias is reflected in the news coverage then? Not at all, because there is a great oh. and absolute separation between the newsroom and the administration of this. Um, oh, not to break into this feud or anything, <laughs> but I think the big difference now and yes. in the period I'm reading about is that it is the lie and the lying that have become the stories. It isn't what's true or false about Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson. It's what Trump has done to democracy by lying, what MAGA lawyers are doing to the trust in the uh, electoral system by going to court with baseless cases. That has become the story. It's almost a whole nother beat. It is. Truth-telling is a beat and in some places. And your point about Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, is a really good one. You know, he's always saying, well, January 6th wasn't really an insurrection, which of course it was. Well, some people taught us how to use a flagpole that we didn't know otherwise. Or break a window. A no, he says, when you think of arms, don't you think of firearms? Yeah, but we also say armed with a knife, armed with tear right. gas canisters, all of which, by the way, have been found along with lots of ammunition and guns. Yeah, we just, we need him to sit down and watch Day of Rage. 
Rage, the New York Times documentary. Did a fantastic job. <laughs> it wouldn't make any difference, would no, it? No, it would, it would well, be true. Herschel Walker. The truth oh, has come boy. out about him. And has it made a difference? Not that we can see so far, at least Well, there hasn't polling. been an election yet. I know, but I'm talking about polling. And, which... Rex, when you talk about the um, local entities that look like newspapers that are really just packages of lies. Yeah. About you know, these false outfits. things that are going to happen in your communities that would be designed to provoke people to maybe vote Republican, vote conservative, vote for the big lie because the quote-unquote news looks so frightening and horrible. And what I find frightening and horrible is the enablers for that. And I, I noticed in the, a story we had the opportunity to look at that the company called LGIS, or uh, Local Government Information Services. Owns a bunch of owns weeklies, supposedly, with names like the Lake County Gazette and the Chicago City Wire. Yeah. Right, and they're mm -hmm. publishing false news. They are being printed by Gannett. Mm, so where we're going to start weeping about Gannett having yeah. big cutbacks. Yeah. Gannett is and the you, largest you, newspaper chain in the country, and you used to work for Gannett. You yeah. were a Gannett editor for many yeah. years. Yeah. And yeah. now yeah. Gannett has just announced another round of cost-cutting. They're saying everybody on their staff has to take a week off without pay before the end of the year. We once did that here at WAMC. We were in trouble financially, and we did exactly the same thing, this isn't and the it first, all came out fine. This isn't the first time that they've done that. And right. I calculated that that's about a 2% pay cut. Of course, it's a 2% pay cut. And Alan, I'm sure it came out fine for WAMC, but what about people who live paycheck to paycheck? I mean, these people, these poor reporters at these little newspapers who are making a couple thousand dollars a month, what are they going to well, do? Yeah. Well, more, Rex, more buyouts Rex, offered. And... Rex, you're a man I much admire, as you probably have heard and know. Nevertheless, there are people who live paycheck to paycheck at public radio stations also. That's my point. You say it turned out fine, and I am glad to hear you say that, that it turned out fine for WAMC, but maybe the people who you cut the pay out of for a week didn't feel that way. Well, no, everybody got what they needed back. But, you know, that was a different time and a different place. What do you think, Rosemary? About Gannett? I about think it's the most horrible of all news companies. Oh, and, it is uh, not. Alden uh, Capital is... Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, uh, that's your Alden. That's a tough for competition both. now. Alden, Alden is now, but Gannett say. started all this. Gannett started this when, drive when, for profits, and they hold well, responsibility. This is the problem the with shareholders. Sucks. It's not the only problem because Alden is not publicly traded, and it is worse. But when you have publicly traded companies like Gannett, their first obligation is to their shareholders, not to their customers, which we in this room would like to think are the readers, the citizens. What they might be thinking are their advertisers of their customers. Their real customers are their shareholders. So they're cutting. We understand that the financial challenges facing news organizations is real. But then to say, okay, we're going to take as a commercial printing job these fake newspapers. They are helping to disseminate fake news. Yes. And I find that, that disgusting. Gannett, once again, has thought disgusting. from its inception only about money. And its innovations as far as journalism have all been odious. Let's go to shorter stories. Let's go to bright and happy. Now, I, Nothing I say in Gannett's history, that is not except for women publishers, makes me happy about that company. So, yes, the movement for women, hiring women as publishers and editors. And I was one of the first women managing editors in the country. You were, too. Not with Gannett, right? Never with uh, Gannett. 
We used to go to national conferences, and my husband would be one of the three male spouses. So they were very good about that. They also were good at the time about hiring minorities, and they would actually make you, as an editor, document your efforts to hire minorities. You can't just say, I tried, nobody applied. And to also increase the diversity of voices in your newspaper and to document that. Well, yes, you have a puzzled look but, on your face. Well, I'm just saying that the point that Barbara's making about the difficulty of profit-making enterprises presenting news is something we've talked about here. And, uh, you know, we talked last week about the fact that the newspaper in Denton, Texas, has been acquired by the local public radio station. So you may think, Alan, that maybe the right thing for you to do would be to buy the Times Union of Albany. <laughs> well, I agree. Some, buy some, buy, rather, go Name to some of offer. the communities where newspapers are failing and buy some of these small papers that are in trouble and rescue them. You could augment your new staff and sustain these publications, perhaps not as robustly as they have been, but you know, maybe there's something to be said for bringing the nonprofit status to more newsrooms across the country. Are you open to handling it for us, Rex? Well, I'm not a broker, but <laughs> anyway, it's an interesting idea. But back to this question about disinformation and, and the targeting of disinformation especially. You know, one of the things that we're seeing political campaigns doing in particular is targeting their information selectively based upon demographic data. And actually, public radio is one of those things. Democrats are sending their information, for example, to public radio listeners because they know those are primarily people on the left. Or if they're excluding people who are consumers of country music, which tends to be heavily more Republican, the Democrats will send their stuff and the Republicans will back away from sending content to people who shop at Whole Foods, for example. Whole Foods people tend to be blue voters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's just a kind of an example. This targeting of information is something that I don't think you can easily combat. That is how information finds its way to people who want to believe what they're told or disinformation finds their way to them. And that's why the independent press has such a difficult time these days because real journalism doesn't always reinforce what you want to hear. In fact, real independent journalism, one of the things that Rosemary and I were talking about just as we were getting in here is this question about the Nord Stream attack. You know, the attack on the pipeline carrying natural gas from Russia to Germany. In all of the coverage that we have been hearing and reading in this country, the intelligence sources have been saying, well, it must have been Russia. And now there is a bit of a sense that we've been getting fed perhaps a line on that, right? Yeah, there's a blind spot. Like, why does it have to be Russia? Because we want them to be the bad guy. We put them in that role, and here it is. It fits. But the real motive for destroying that pipeline that would bring gas, that would bring fuel and energy from Russia into Germany is the United States and the West, which wants to hurt Russia. Russia would like to split apart the alliance of NATO, of, of NATO and the EU. And this winter, they're pressing Europe. So being able to deliver energy into Germany would be a plus. They've sunk billions into that pipeline. Why would they blow it up? Just to be able to say, oh, the Allies must have done it. It, it makes far more sense that it was the U.S. They have both the motivation, certainly have the means, as well as Russia, to drop a bomb deep below the sea. We could have done it. And yeah. also, one other thing, the third point, was that our whole warfare against Russia has been proxy. We're not really fighting with Russia. Oh, no, no, no. We're just supporting Ukraine. Mm. Mm. You really think, uh, Rosemary Armeo, that this country, with its democratic credos and everything else, is capable of pulling something like that? Oh. <laughs> 
How many dead Latin American dictators would testify to that if they could? Yeah, I do. I think we have secret ops, and it's within our capability, our interests, and since this is a media program, I'm getting into the politics. Well, of course. Why has the media, no one except this one article from an obscure publication, I couldn't even find it, why are they the only ones suggesting it? Why has that not been examined? I think this is a really interesting point, and it goes back to George W. Bush's invasion. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction, exactly. We believed American intelligence, and so reporters were basically being fed this by U.S. intelligence agencies. And it is because where you go for information, you have your sources. And, of course, it's easy for Americans to have American sources, but reporters need to be more broad. It's just that if you don't have the source to tell you to give you information why this U.S. could be culpable in this Nord Stream attack, you're not going to be able to use it. It's a failure of reporting, I think, right? When we worked overseas, we told our reporters that, yes, you need to listen to and seek out American intelligence information, but do not use it as a single source, especially. It's biased. It's extremely biased, and we know that from the weapons of mass destruction debacle. And I think that this is one case where we just took it hook, line, and sinker. We did it with Hunter Biden, too. Oh, that's ridiculous. He couldn't have let his laptop there. That's just Trump stuff. We did it with Wuhan flu. Remember, we were so intent on defending Chinese uh, Americans against that horrible, and he's continued it, his racist rantings by Trump, that we didn't look into the real possibility that that flu-like condition might have come from a lab. We just overlooked it because we didn't like the source of the idea. It's a really bad problem for the media. And so this underscores why fundamentals of reporting apply at the highest levels, too. You know, we teach young reporters, if your mama says she loves you, check it out. And we need to have even our greatest reporters, those people who we entrust with the beat of U.S. national security, those reporters sometimes perhaps need to be reminded as well that the sources that you tend to believe that seem credible to you all the time may well not be. Just as a police officer can lie to you on a local beat in Mm -hmm. Albany and Saratoga Springs and Troy, it can be the case that a senior U.S. intelligence official can be lying to the New York Times intelligence people. Is there a risk, Rex, Rosemary, Barbara, isn't there a risk that if somebody lies within the press that they'll get caught and really destroy themselves? I don't see that how happening. Does, yeah. How has Donald Trump destroyed himself by lying 20,000 no, 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 times? No, no, no. I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm oh. talking about media accepting lies. Oh, if Judith the Miller. Media, yeah. Mm-hmm. Judith Miller's career it's exactly ended. what you were talking yeah. about. She was uh, the New York Times reporter mm-hmm. who reported on weapons of mass destruction that did not exist in Iraq. New York Times reporting was highly influential in pushing the U.S. towards war. And it all came from one source who was an anti-Iraqi operative and he was playing her and playing the top officials in the U.S. White House. And so when she said, oh, I have two sources, the White House and this Iraqi guy, it was really the same person. It was just ridiculous, terrible reporting at the highest level. Her career is ruined. Jason Blair lied and plagiarized and made up stuff, and he's now a life coach. <laughs> is that right? Uh, hey, I, yeah, should, I should do that job, too. <laughs> Uh, it's terrible. Who's the guy who wrote about the CIA in California? Oh, right. But again, these are individual cases that we know because that kind of deception is pretty rare among journalists. Well, that's what I was saying, but nobody was listening in this panel when I said the risk here is you're going to get caught. And I was trying to tell you people who did get caught. People do get caught. Yeah, well, so. But we don't know how many 
haven't been, right? We don't know if there might be, and, and it's more I know. localized. And there's the yeah. more nuanced problem yes. between people who are going to outright lie or use bad sources and not really source their material well versus being suckered into stories. Well, now you've been a top reporter, top executive and all of that. Have you run across people in news organizations who as a regularity or regularly lie? Who are actually yeah, are working you're, for yeah, the Yeah, you media? and your colleagues no. say, oh, no. that guy's such a liar. No, not as a no. journalist. Well, I mean, not circle in, the wagons. Not in the organizations we've worked for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we would. Uh, I see. <laughs> and so you you want us to like give up people we know, name names, huh? I I can't. Not, no, I'm not really saying that. I'm saying, and I'm sure that there are people on the other side of the radio who are sagaciously nodding their heads and saying, "Yeah, yeah. have you ever seen people who make it up?" Yes. I did have a short-lived reporter who wrote a story that was published in the Saratogian. When you were the editor. I was the editor about a vote that took place in one of the small towns in the county, except that the vote was the opposite of what happened. (laughs) Whoa. How did that happen? The reporter didn't go to the meeting and file the story. (laughs) I was so sure it was going to happen that way. Yeah. Ah. That's somebody who is not in journalism anymore. Yeah, I've never had anybody who works for me, I don't think, who made anything up. But I would say I did have people who worked with me, not for me at the time, who say we're so pro-police that they would look the other way or were racist Uh. and would, so it would color what they would cover and what they wouldn't write about protecting politicians who shouldn't be protected because of personal connections. So, What did you do about that? I wasn't the boss. Huh. But you but saw it. I saw it. But and you were the boss. I wasn't the boss, but I also didn't ignore it if I was an editor. You know, in, in a bigger news organization, you can combat that by putting another reporter on the story. When we had, for example, when I was covering courts on Long Island for a 600-person newsroom, when there had to be some reporting about cops where there's some suspicion, the cops reporters weren't the ones who did the story because they were really close to the guys, number one. Number two, you had to preserve their ability to get the information. You know, Rex, that is such an interesting insight that you are offering us. And it goes on all over the place, not only in terms of journalism, but in other places. But it's fascinating that in order to get along in a, any given profession, you gotta have friends. And if you gotta have friends, you got a problem. Early, early on in my career, I was standing on a street corner near the newspaper and City Hall is across the street and yeah. the police department was across the street. I was standing with the police reporter. Yes. And we saw a police car pull up to the curb. They dragged a suspect out by his feet and dragged him up the couple of steps into the building. And I reported it. The police reporter looked the other way. And oh, my exactly, story exactly what you're my saying. Point. And I got called to the grand jury. Yeah, after 9-11, I was in Florida, the heart of where all the action was, and we had assigned two reporters to look at whether local mosques in the area knew about the people who were there training to fly planes. And one sources were the FBI and federal enforcement. He goes, yeah, they're in there. It's really a problem. It's just a nest of difficulty. The woman who covered was a religion report, and she came in and said, oh, these poor Muslims are being, you know, harassed by the feds, and there's nothing. They're all... And the reporters couldn't sort it out. They had been friends. They've never spoken to each other since that story, I think. So Mm. I got called in to sort it all out. And when I came back, I said, they're both right. You know, they both are so filtered that they can only see one side of the story, and the real story is in between. We have to put them together, although somebody else will have to write it. I was disciplined for not being a decisive editor. You would not be hearing this if you weren't listening to the Media Project right now. (laughs) 
there's a lot of Absolutely. gray. And I, I remember there, I have having a very enthusiastic reporter where politicians were always wrong, and his stories were very negatively slanted. He couldn't he, he couldn't see the nuance. He couldn't see the gray in right, life. Right. Um, he subsequently ended up working for government. Well, there you go. You can only tell one side of the story. You don't have to worry about it. I think that's a a key issue is the the gray area. You know, we generally lead our lives in these shades of gray. Very little in our lives is all good or all bad. You have to make choices that are sometimes difficult. And the gray area makes for mushy, unreadable stories. Yes. The best investigative reporters tend to see things in black and white, which is why they require the strongest, most firm editors. If you want to say that, okay, but I'm going to need three sources, and one of them better be at a high level. And Gary Webb, for example, who did the CIA reporting on in California, the name I lost before, he didn't have that in the The story, I believe, was correct. His subsequent book was much more filled with evidence than his newspaper stories were. He was drummed out of the business and later committed suicide because he didn't have an editor who said, good story, keep working on it. Yeah, that's a really good point. You you hear what she was saying is that the great investigative reporters tend to see things in black and white. They tend to be almost righteous in their condemnation. And you need an editor who's willing to say, yes, but hold on, get this. You need those investigative reporters. You need somebody who's a little bit contentious to have have the backbone. They have to be scrappy and hungry. To go after but a then story. they need somebody to edit them. That's what yeah. that word is. Our yeah. friend Ira Fussfeld has turned me on to a new Hillary Swank series, Alaska Daily, oh, yes. which is very much along the lines that we're talking about now. How to trust your sources? What if they lie? How do you treat people who are saying, "Well, yeah, but we need more evidence"? It's really kind of interesting. The series is a little uh, over the top. Uh, way it? over yeah. the top, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> like, I just want to smack her. <laughs> and where does one find this? It's a network show. I think it's. ABC. It's actually a 48-minute ep- per episode. I think there may be several nine episodes, perhaps. Just go to Google, and yeah. they'll tell you where to watch it. And the it's name called is? Alaska Daily. Alaska Daily, mm-hmm. yeah. It kind of is meant to tug the heartstrings and tell you, boy, these journalists are really upright people. And yeah, that's great, but it portrays things a little bit too... Black mm. and white. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what makes it a good drama. And so, there you, go. you know, the nuances... You remember, that we always talk the first lesson of the Code of Ethics, Society of Professional Journalists, seek the truth and report as fully as possible. But the fact is, when you report things fully, sometimes the truth is not just right there in the black and white. And so that nuance is where real journalism begins and not just... uh, Story's always better at the beginning when it's like, oh my God, look what they did. And then you go, oh, but that didn't really happen. And this is why they did it. And, And then it's mushy and not as good. It's truer. But it's not as good. When you say good, you mean exciting, readable, I mean good in the journalistic sense. A great story is really horrible news, yes. A great story is often horrible news. I had a mentor who used to say with tongue-in-cheek, he said, I never report out a good story. It ruins it. (laughs) Yes. There you go. He was being facetious. He was being facetious. That's right. He was, like a lot of you PhDs, he was just Just over the top there. Thank you, Dr. Shartok. All right. It's time for us to go. That is all we have time for in the Media Project this week. That's Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you for joining us this week once again on the Media Project. Write us a letter. Folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 